You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are in Psalm 90 tonight, and we are only actually doing one psalm tonight. I wanted to try and do two, but it just didn't work out that way in my study. So we're doing Psalm 90 this evening. Let's just commit this time to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get straight into our Bible study. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we just come before you now. We want to hear from your word, Lord. We want to hear you speak to us and edify us, build us up, Lord, and just do all of those wonderful things that you do as we peer into your word. Just reveal those truths to us. Open our eyes that we would see the wonderful things contained within it. In Jesus' name, in his sake we pray. So we are on Psalm 90. Let's just jump straight in. It starts off by saying, A prayer of Moses the man of God. I think this is the only psalm that's actually attributed to Moses. We know that he did write a few things similar to the psalms that we have within the Torah, within the Pentateuch. In Exodus 15, we have the famous Song of Moses and a few other places he writes in a poetic form. But most of his writings are, of course, the Decalogue, the Law, and the first five books. Moses did write this, so this means that it is probably one of the oldest psalms in the Psalter. And you see this phrase, the man of God. I like that. Just very quick. It's almost like a a hashtag phrase. Moses, man of God. It's like we'd see on his tombstone, that would be how he'd be labelled. He was a man of God. You find that expression all through Deuteronomy and Joshua applied to Moses whenever he's spoken about and to a few other people in the Old Testament too. He was a man of God. So let's jump in and see what this man of God has to say in this psalm. Let's read just the first two verses. He said, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Or some of your Bibles might have refuge there. It's the same theme that we've seen throughout the psalms, that God is a refuge. Just to remind you that this psalm is most likely written against the backdrop of the wilderness wanderings, of course being written by Moses. Moses was a man who spent his life wandering in the desert. He spent 40 years being prepared for ministry, but remind you that he also never made it to the promised land. So This is Moses, and in the wilderness they would have been constantly in need of uh, dwelling places, of shelter, of refuge in a physical sense. And of course we know from reading Uh, The rest of the Bible, one of the lessons that God was obviously teaching them through those physical things was what they really needed was to see God as their refuge and strength and him as their dwelling place in a spiritual sense too. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 26, Moses wrote this. It's a similar expression. He says, There is none like the God of Jeshurun, who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. It's a very intimate picture here. The the eternal God is a dwelling place. We'll talk about the eternality of God in a moment. That's a big theme in this introduction to the psalm. But it says he's a dwelling place in all generations. So this is a reminder to us that his tender care for Israel is not just for this present time. It also stretches back to Abraham and also stretches back into eternity past. The idea is here does seem to be emphasizing the concept of a home, a dwelling place, a habitation. Psalm 26, verse 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. And I like the idea of home. 
If we think we all, have, we all understand why homes are so dear to our heart, it's a place where we come in from the outside, it's a place where we return to from a journey, it's a place that one looks forward to arriving after being out. We know that on the inside we are going to be met with good things, a place where we are safe, loved and secure. Now, of course, I'm under, I understand in this world there are people who don't experience that, but this is the ideal that I'm sure we can all either have experienced or understand this is what a home should be like. And we have all these feelings about home. And it doesn't matter where you go on holiday, after a, after a bit of time, you're kind of waiting to get home. And it's not so much the place, it's all the people, everything you have, and it's that environment that we know. This is what it's getting at here. And the point that he's making is someone who is a friend of God or someone who is a son of God, Israel is the elect son of God, us as individual sons of God in that sense, we should have this feeling about God. We should think of him as our place of habitation. And therefore that transcends the physical homes just like the children of Israel had in their physical tents, but they first knew that God was the place where they should feel safe and secure, the place they should long to come back to, the place that should consume their hearts. And that is the concept that's being expressed to us here, and it is through all generations. It then says, Before the mountains were born, all you gave birth to the world from everlasting to everlasting. So before the mountains, if you've ever seen pictures of the, the wilderness, or the outback, you could say, in the Middle East, and the journey that Moses took, it can be quite rugged terrain, and you would have big mountains on the landscape. You can more really imagine Moses on the journey, seeing these mountains and making him reflect on the truth that God, who is his habitation, his, his dwelling place, existed before these mountains were ever formed. And the point, obviously, from that is that God is not part of the creation. He transcends the creation. That's a very important point of the doctrine that we call the eternality of God. God is separate from the creation in that sense, unlike many of the theistic worldviews or new age spiritualism that we have that would argue that God is part or in creation in that, that way. God of Israel transcends creation because he created it. It says, you gave birth. And I would say that this indicates that the physical universe, including time, was brought into being by God. And therefore, God is really the ultimate reality. We say that he is eternal from everlasting to everlasting, Moses writes. It means he is without beginning, he is without end, he is without succession or change. That is the eternality of God. And we see that from the creation of the universe. And I want to just take a little deep dive excursion with you here. I'll try and keep this so that we can understand as we go through. But I would say you can reasonably infer from verses such as this and other verses that the universe had a beginning. Now, the history of 20th century cosmology is that, well, up until 1940s, they believed that the universe had no beginning, it was actually eternal. Therefore, it was in many ways acting as a substitute for God, very similar to the concept of people <laughs> worshipping the creation and not the creator. The universe was given the properties of eternality, just like God, and therefore you don't have to think about where everything came from. However, in the 1940s, with Einstein, relativity theory, he proved that the universe was, in fact, expanding. I won't go into that except to say, as it relates to this subject here, of course, if you have something expanding, if you go back in time and it would contract, you get to a beginning point. That's the, the principle there. So 
This was something that caused many cosmologists to think, well, that sounds a lot like what we read about in the Bible. In fact, one uh, physicist, J.M. Wersinger, he wrote, he said it like this. At first, the scientific community was very reluctant to accept the idea of a birth of the universe. Not only did the Big Bang model seem to give in to the Judeo-Christian idea of the beginning of the world, but it also seemed to have a call for an act of supernatural creation. Now, it's quite true. Obviously, I'm not uh, affirming everything that the standard Big Bang model says there, but the concept of the universe having a beginning is what I want to focus on. And because of arguments like this and how obvious that makes the question, well, where did it begin? How did it begin? Many uh, Christian apologists and philosophers going back centuries and centuries into history have used the universe as an argument for the existence of God. We call it the cosmological argument. It comes in many different shapes and sizes. Many atheists immediately would object to such reasoning, and this is where you get that famous, very common question, who created God or who designed the designer? Again, it comes up in many different forms. This is where it's coming from. So we know that the universe had a beginning now, though. 20th century cosmology has proved that. No one really disputes that now in any large or serious way. The laws of thermodynamics have demanded. The universe is running down, and it cannot have been running down forever. That's just a fact. If it had, obviously it would have run out by now, and that's the point. No stars would still be churning out energy, and we would not be here. One of the most established principles that we have of both logic, science, and all reality, something that we observe and we know every day, is what we call the principle of causality, cause and effect, you could say. And this is that something that begins to exist must have a sufficient cause for its existence. Things do not just pop into existence out of nothing. That's something that we observe daily. Now, it's important to note, just want to say it clearly, as a lot of mistakes over this argument, we are only claiming with this argument that things that begin to exist must have a sufficient cause. It is not a blanket statement that everything must have a sufficient cause. We are saying things that begin to exist must have a cause. That's just important because you'll get that thrown at you in some settings, but let's not worry about it too much now. So there are many today who strenuously deny the existence of God, and they are forced to affirm that the greatest beginning we really ever could conceive of the beginning of the creation of the universe that we can prove scientifically and and philosophically, and obviously we primarily prove it theologically. But they must assert that that greatest beginning of all beginnings had no cause whatsoever. Some will admit that this is a problem. Others ignore it, but some, quite a few, will admit that it's a problem. However, they then go on to claim that just saying God did it is not a good explanation because that just punts the problem back. And they would then say, well, if you're going to say that, then we'll just ask the question of you, where did God come from? And that you see how their logic follows, and that's the same question that they get. However, there is an error in this logic and this reasoning, because it assumes that this God or this first cause, the God that we posit, obviously, shares the same properties, i.e. it is a physical being, the physical universe. It's composed of space, time, and matter. And therefore, it is subject to the same laws of causality and the same laws as the physical universe. And of course, I hope you can see that that's not actually what Christians propose God is. 
So we deduce that the cause of the universe must have been non-material if the cause was material, because it had to produce that. If it was material, I hope you're following me here, it would be subject to the same laws of decay, and then you'd be stuck in this cycle of having to find a cause for that thing, and you'd go round and round, and the atheists would be right. We'd never get anywhere. But that's obviously not what we're proposing. So we would argue that the cause of the universe must have been supernatural, i.e., what we mean by that is non-material. Another word, a more theological term for something that's non-material, is that it is spirit, if you could say that. I hope you see where I'm going with this. So the cause of the universe had to be non-material, i.e. spirit, and it had to be outside of space and time and matter, which is what makes up our physical universe. Because if it was not outside of it, it would be in it, and again, it would be subject to the same laws of decay, and we'd be stuck in this circle again. So it had to transcend it. This is, you see where I'm going with this? This is a perfect way from science to reason to the eternality of God. So the cause had to be an eternal spirit deduced from science. Therefore, the cause of the universe was also needed to be incredibly powerful. The sheer size and energy seen in the universe together speak of that power. And this is why we would say it was also a sufficient cause. Something, remember, we said it's not just a cause, it has to be a sufficient cause. That means it has to have the proper explanatory power to explain the effect. And this, I believe, is what the Bible actually gives us, and it matches correctly. So you have a cause that is non-material, that is outside of time, that is spirit, and that is incredibly powerful. All of those attributes are deduced from the logic of looking at the laws of logic, principles of causality... However, if you're following me here, you'll know that all of those attributes are also a very good description of what we describe the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is described as being eternal. We just read that verse. Before the mountains were brought forth, or before you ever formed the earth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's the same as saying it transcends the space, physical space-time universe. The God of the Bible is also described as being all-powerful. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11 Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. God is eternal. God is all powerful. And yes, we also know that God is spirit. John 4:24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Thus, the God revealed to us in the Bible matches perfectly with what we would expect when we study the physical universe, which obviously should not surprise us because we know that the Bible is a revelation from the very one who created the physical universe. So you see how these things match up. Now, I know that was a bit of a digression, but I'm hoping you see now, by taking that digression, we've come back now to the point of the eternal God. And let's anchor this back in the text of verse 2 that we're looking at. The text ascribes all of these attributes to God. Now, we know we don't refer to God as the first cause. We do in philosophy, but the Bible here gives us a very clear definition. It says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is not an unmoved mover. This is not a nameless first cause. This is not an unknown designer, as a lot of these arguments often argue. 
We don't stop there. We need to go much further. We need to identify this first cause, tell them who the designer is, or else these arguments don't really have much effect, because we want to identify them. And it says, you are God. This is the God of Israel. This is Yahweh that we're talking about here. The idea is that he was always and ever will be God, the God, the true God, the only God, the unchangeable God. At any period in the past during his existence on earth, during the existence of the earth, all the heavens, or before the earth was formed, he existed and he had all of the attributes of deity. At any time in the future, as far as the mind can reach into the future, and even beyond that, he will still exist unchanged with all the attributes of deity. Now there cannot be a more sublime thought than this, the fact that there is one eternal, immutable, immensely powerful God, and this is the one that we have revealed to us in the Bible. And he is described in the beginning of this psalm by Moses in that manner, as the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. But this attribute is given to us for a reason. It's not just to blow our minds, it does do that. It's not just as a way to show how powerful God is, it's in the context of a home. You remember that? This is the, this is the context of the passage here, God is our habitation and because he is everlasting, that means those who are his, who have been invited into his home, are forever going to have a home and a refuge in God. So in one sense, his eternality is the guarantee and the promise of our eternal future with him. And that's how these doctrines come full circle, and we move on with him. And I believe that is ultimately what Moses is getting at here in a roundabout way. Because what he's about to do next is he comes down from the lofty heights of God and he starts looking at man, and we see the picture is very, very different. So let's read verses 3 to five, three to 6. He says, You turn man back into dust, and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. I want you to move into this next period of the text with that grand vision of the eternal God still in your minds. And you'll, you need to do that to fully appreciate the contrast that he is creating here. Man is not God. Man is part of the creation, not the one who transcends it. It says we will turn back to dust. Now, this obviously is an echo to Genesis chapter 3.18, where it says, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. It's referencing us back to the beginning pages of the book of Genesis, obviously, which Moses wrote, remember, the creation narrative. And it, say, and it says, and return, O children of men. I'll read to you one quote that one Bible commenter says on this verse. He says, return, all of you, without exception, kings, princes, nobles, warriors, conquerors, mighty people, captains and counsellors, the learned and the great, the honoured and the flattered, the beautiful, the happy, the youthful, the vigorous, the aged and the venerable, whatever is your rank, whatever your possessions, whatever your honours, whatever you have to make you lovely, to charm, to please, to be admired, or whatever there is to make you loathsome and detestable, you vicious, you profane, low, grovelling, sensual and debased, all of you alike to dust return. And his point is obviously that is all of humanity, without distinction. Verse 4, now we'll get on to the necessary consequence of this, that is obviously those who are his, that's not the end of their life. He says, a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. 
And again, Moses here seems to be making a poetical analogy to the point of the first verse that God is eternal outside of time from everlasting to everlasting. And even when he considers the longest life in the Bible, which was Methuselah, which was almost a thousand years, that could be the same as a day, i.e. a day being the short period of time, a thousand years being a long period of time. To the eternal creator God, a short period of time and a long period of time may as well be the same. It doesn't really, he doesn't have that same concept that we have. Now in Second Peter, you might remember, Peter quotes this verse in a similar context, talking about God's relationship to time and waiting. I'll read it for you. In Second Peter 3, verses 8 to 9, you'll see him quote this verse. He says, But do not let this fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And he's making the same point there by quoting from Moses' psalm here, that God is outside of time, so this waiting, although it seems like a long time to us, it's not the same for God. Now, as a comment about this verse, there are some, and I would say too many, who use this verse as a way to teach that the days of creation in Genesis are to be interpreted as long periods of time and not 24-hour periods of time. Unfortunately, those usually theistic evolutionists or long-age creationists, they often use this verse. Now, there are plenty of good people who hold those views. They have much stronger arguments than this, and this is not an argument they should ever really use. The context, as I'm sure you can see in Peter here, has absolutely nothing to do with the actual days of creation. It's a quotation from Psalm 90 from Moses, where he's making a point about the eternality of God. So that's just one issue there. It's completely wrong to try and use it for that. Another one is obviously that you cannot use a Greek word in the New Testament to interpret the context of a Hebrew word in the Old Testament, written by two different authors thousands of years apart. That's just not a good hermeneutical way to do that. A third point would be that it's not a definition of a day that we're seeing here. It doesn't say this is a day. It says this is like a day. That's a figure of speech. It's a simile, we call it. So it's just a poetical reference that we find here. He's making that same point. The point is that God is outside of time and he is eternal. So there are those three comments there. And then in verse 5 and 6, back in Psalm 90, he makes a number of other poetical analogies. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards evening it fades and withers away. Now, this is the same imagery, almost, this is poetry, this is a good example of poetry here. He's using things that they will be familiar with through the physical world, a waterfall, flowers growing, a flood, to illustrate his point here again. That the life cycle of man is very regular, it is almost like a vapour, it rises up, the floods go away quickly, the grass comes up, but then the grass dies and you get that cycle going on again. It's just his point here. He's emphasizing it in a number of different ways. Let's go into verse 8, verse 7, sorry. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due to you? 
So teach us to number our days so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. You see, Moses witnessed and he knew full well the judgment of God. He'd been through all those years in the wilderness wanderings. He'd seen this many times. But there is a deeper connection, I believe, being made here. You see, the whole reason that we have to see the wrath of God as judgment is because of sin. And he's talking about the life cycle of man here from dust to dust. It's talking about death. And the very reason that we have death is because of the entrance of sin, which is the reason that we see the wrath of God poured out in the same way. Romans 5.12, Just as through one man sin entered the world, death through sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's again emphasizing that the eternality of God is about life. This is why he can be the source of all life, because he is the actual definition of life. He never ends. He's never going to change. He's never going to have that death like we would call it. And it's contrasting that with the fact that man does not have that. We have sin and we have death, and our life cycle is very short in that respect. These two things are fundamentally opposed to each other, and therefore sin must be dealt with. And that is what the whole story of the Bible is really about. And it says this here in verse 9, uh, verse 8 rather, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Now that always makes you a bit hot under the collar, doesn't it? When, when the Bible starts talking about secret sins, those things that we think in our minds, that we know no one else is never going to know, that we wouldn't want anyone else to know, but God does know. All things will be brought into the light, he says. Nothing is hidden from the light of his presence. All sins are seen by God. Imagine the displeasure. God hates sin. This is why his wrath is stored up, it says in the Bible, in very strong terms. And we sit here you know, in a part of the world where certain things shock us more than others. If you spend any amount of time on the internet, you'll find many, many things that are hard to contemplate happening in this world. They're so abominable but yet you multiply them, you know, every one we read, there's probably a hundred that we don't know about all over the world, all the time, but it's not just acts, it's right into our thoughts. You just think of how much sin God is actually seeing, how much it's decayed, this world that he created. And therefore, when we see God act, and Moses knows this, when he acts, he is righteous and just to act. He is the one who can deal with this sort of thing. Nothing is hidden from him. And again, For all our days have declined in your fury. Verse 9 there. The Hebrew uh, was translated declined. It more has the idea of turning. And the picture is, because of sin, you could say every day we're getting closer to death. the, The idea, poetic form again, is that the days of our life are literally turning away from us. They do not stay with us. And this is the idea that he's getting at, that every single day... We are getting closer. It's a bit of a morbid thought, but this is the reality of life on this earth. Every day we are getting closer to that moment where we return to dust. So this is the idea that he's, he's building here, and that is because of sin. Life on this earth is considered a vapor. You see how it all connects with his initial thought. A day, a day is as a thousand years. God is outside of time. We need to uh, understand this. And then he explores this thought a little more in the last few verses where he says, if I had 70 years... 
Uh, verse 10, as the days of your life, they contain 70, or if you're strong, 80. And now again, I think Moses lived to 120, I believe, but he, he's using this as just a, a representative number, I believe, of full life uh, at, the, at this stage. Even if you go a little bit over that, it's saying it's basically pointing to a, fu- a full life. All of them are just a vapor in his hand. It doesn't matter if it's 70, 120. It's still passing very quickly. It will fly away. And again, notice the terms there. It will fly away. Your days will just fly away from you. The days will turn and walk away from you. They don't stay with you. Verse 11, who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due to you? Again, the point is that this life is a fallen world. It's subject to decay, sin, and this results in divine displeasure. Remember, especially the context of Moses. Think of everything he witnessed in the wilderness years. No sooner had he received the tablets of God than he came down to find the nation of Israel involved in gross idolatry, the sin of the golden calf. He saw the displeasure of God at that moment. He saw the grumbling throughout the wilderness of the people. He saw God's displeasure at that. He saw the rebellion of Korah. We've been reading Psalms by the descendants of the Korahites. That where he saw the displeasure of God and the ground literally open up and swallow those rebellions. He'd seen all of this through the wilderness years. If there's anyone we should be listening to who knows about this, it is Moses. Now this, you may think, well, this is a pretty dull picture of humanity he's painting here. That is exactly what he's trying to get because he's contrasting it, remember, with that. You've got to have those first two verses in your head throughout this whole psalm. He's contrasted it with the highest lofty picture of God that he could give us and then he's explaining the brevity of man's life because of the consequences of sin and then he ends his application with this verse, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may be present, that we may present for you, to you a heart of wisdom. This is probably a fact, one of the most famous verses in Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days in the light of the brevity of life, basically make us use them wisely. And if you think about all the things that we number in this life, a lot of us number our victories, a lot of us, you know, we all know how to number money, don't we? Things like this. I'm not necessarily saying any of these things are bad, but if you just think about all the things that we generally number, days is quite often not one of them. But here, Moses is actually asking for help. Remember, this is a prayer, a prayer of the man, Moses, the man of God. And he's praying to God, and now he's actually asking God to help him use the allotted time that he has on this earth wisely. And that's, I think, we all can learn a lesson from that. And I think we understand this, and especially as you get older in life, the whole term midlife crisis usually comes from that understanding that your youthful years are maybe behind you now. You can't ever get them back, and you start thinking about, oh, what have I done? What have I accomplished? And that's where the whole thing of a midlife crisis comes from. And that really continues. We can't have time back. We don't get that lost time back. They say time is a river, and it only runs once under the bridge, that expression. Now, we can ask ourselves, and you probably know this feeling, how many times have you spent all day doing nothing? I mean, so many times, and we just think of all the things that we could do. I'm not saying... There aren't times when you maybe need to do that for, for yourself. But then there's also times where you know you've been like, oh, I, I have this. When I've got so many things I want to do, and you have one of those days, you're like, oh, I really wasted that day. Now, obviously, in the big scheme of things, our days are all numbered and are in, in the Lord's hands. But I think what Moses is getting at here is that we need help to actually have that mindset that we do use our time wisely 
for his kingdom. And this is not just this verse. We find this principle outlaid for us throughout all of the New Testament too. Colossians 4 verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. The opportunities that we have, we need to make the most of them. This is in the context of towards outsiders here, talking about evangelism, I believe. In Ephesians 5, verse 15 and 16, it says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Making the most of your time, because the days are evil. By taking account of these facts, Moses then writes that we may present to you a heart of wisdom, i.e., basically, I believe what he's getting at here, the knowledge, this knowledge would cause us to act wisely. Once we know this fact, we should act wisely with our time, we should seek God, we should literally number our days. And what can we do for God in these times? What are we doing with our lives? What things are important to us? What it is we're seeking? What are we pursuing? What is consuming our thoughts? All of these things are involved in this concept of teaching us to number our days that we may have a heart of wisdom. And that's probably the biggest part of application that we get from this, this prayer of God, uh, prayer of the man of God of Moses. Let's just read the last 13. Let's just read to the end, actually, now. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favour of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. So now Moses, he turns and he beseeches God in prayer to actually return to them. And this is, again, a poetic contrast. Man was to return to dust. The only way, really, to interfere with that process is for God to return to them. And he asks God to return to them. Seeing that, he wants him to return in compassion. Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. That's a beautiful phrase. Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. And remember this. This is Moses who's writing this. He knows the attributes and character of God. He had it revealed to him on the mountain. Do you remember that very famous episode, Exodus 34, where he's hidden up in the top of the mountain? It says, The Lord descended in the cloud, stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So Moses knows the attributes of God. So here he's saying, Lord, return to us as a rebellious people with compassion and have mercy upon us. And I believe that is something that even the church should be, we should have that attitude in our lives as we're living. Again, that's part of numbering our days, using our time wisely and making the most of the opportunity. He then goes on to say that when the Lord returns in compassion, that they may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. If you've ever experienced those moments where you just feel the forgiveness of the Lord in your life or, or where you, you have that very real sense of his presence in you, you will have that bubbling up inside of you, that singing for joy or just gladness. And these are strong feelings that can happen from this. I'm not saying you get that every time. It's more than just that. But what Moses is saying here, from where they are to having the Lord return in compassion, the result will be that the nation will sing for joy and they will be glad all of our days. 
Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us. And again, that's a strong verse there. But remember, this is in the context of the wilderness wanderings. The emphasis, again, is on days. You see how much time is a a feature of this psalm, in the sense that God is outside of time. We are within time. We number our days, but to him it's no different. He's outside of time, so we must use our time wisely. Even in the midst of affliction, as experienced by that wilderness generation, they still want to experience the loving kindness and the compassion of God. They still want his favor to be upon them. That is the prayer of Moses. And then he says in the final verse, confirm the work of our hands. You see that twice there. Confirm the work of our hands. It's a very unusual phrase, this. It's quite hard to understand really what he's getting at. Um, it seems to be that they wanted God to work. He want, they wanted God to work with them to accomplish their duties as they went through their lives. And this is probably in the context of getting to the promised land, being planted in their own land. You remember the language that was used of coming to the promised land was they were going to be planted in that land and it was going to be their habitation. Takes us right back to that first verse. Firstly, they have to have God as their dwelling place. Then they'll get the physical land. That's that's the concept that seems to be developed with this psalm. Now, let's just close by applying this. I know we'll finish a bit early tonight, but we'll close by applying New Testament eyes to this psalm. Seeing what we've seen in this psalm, that the chasm between God and man is so large, how and where does heaven ever meet earth? That's an age-old question, and many of these religious groups that we read about in the ancient Near East were asking this same question. The whole concept of a temple in ancient Near Eastern religion was to provide a space where the deity could meet the people. That, and that's why you would often have, for obviously, false gods and idols. You had statues and different ceremonies and religious rites. But the actual concept of a temple is not far off what we find in the Bible. In fact, the Bible seems to be the, the prototype in many ways of this, a place where God dwells, quite literally where heaven meets earth. First, we see this in Eden, a place where God would walk. It says he walked in the garden with his people. Sin ruined that. And therefore, God could not dwell in that presence. So he had to have a special place where the sin would be dealt with. This is the whole point of the tabernacle. This is the whole point of the temple where God would dwell again with man. That is how the chasm is bridged. Now, with New Testament eyes, we know we've just seen in this prayer, haven't we? Moses cries out, how long until your compassion comes? You could see him really earnestly crying out in prayer. We have that answered to us in the fullest in the New Testament Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. And this is the very reason why this son is always spoken of with temple language. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. This is the whole point. That is now the ultimate fulfillment of the temple, the place where heaven really does meet earth. It's a place where the sin, the altar can be wiped away. It's a saviour who would redeem the world, a person untainted by the sin of man. This is, we call him the mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. But yet at the same time, we have this understanding that it's much more than that. It's also the same eternal God that we read about in this psalm. This is really the amazing story of the gospel. And as we take it further into the New Testament epistles, you see how that temple concept is then expanded to include every single one of us as part of the temple of God.
These things are just, there's so much depth that we could go into on these. They kind of blow my mind when I start thinking about them. I feel like we only ever just scrape the surface of the truths of God for a lifetime. We'll be searching these things out, and that's our privilege as children. Now, in light of this, what do we do? To be honest, I think we just do what Moses did. We cry out more and more to God that he would teach us to number our days, and we would make the most of the opportunity, remembering that he is from everlasting to everlasting. And because of that, our future with him is secure. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.